All right, so when I was a little boy, I used to watch Mission Impossible with that cool black dude over at my grandma's house, and I would get all inspired and sneak around looking for secrets. One day, I was lurking in the closet, hoping Granny was going to lead me to the family treasure. And just when I was about to find out all that had been forbidden to know, she snatched open the closet door. Boy, you ain't that sneaky. Get on out that closet. Get on out now, making up all kinds of noise. What you think this is? Well, Granny, she didn't deter me. I still wanted to find out the secrets because I needed to know. I needed to know what side my grandmother worked for. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we're crossing over Checkpoint Charlie to the gray zone. Stories about people who, for one reason or the other, are forced into the shadow world of dark cloaks and twisted allegiances. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Okay, so when you're the CIA and you're going into a country, you don't stop by customs and say, I'm with the CIA. You say, hey, I'm with the embassy. Now. I didn't have to worry about that because I wasn't with the CIA. I was a junior, junior, junior foreign service officer in Malaysia. Cool. But the guy who was my boss in charge of everything going on clandestine was actually the CIA station chief. And this man, this dude made James Bond look like Pee Wee Herman, a cool brother. Ladies checked him out. Dudes wanted to be him. Everybody knew he was CIA. What else could he be? Put that ready smile, hiding secrets, confidence, stride, in the no baby. Boss man was all that. Shaken, not stirred. And one day, he asked me if I wanted to go for a ride. Said we needed to keep up appearances. Me? Yeah, where are we going? But he's not answering my questions, just driving. Not far. Not far at all to the Russian embassy. Hey, hey, we're friends with the Russians now, right? That's right. We go in to a reception room. Three men come from behind the door and they shake hands with Big Boss Man. Boss Man says, hey, I'm going to need you to stay here for a while. I got to take care of a couple things. All right, all right. He goes off with the men. The door shuts and I sit down on a chair facing the receptionist and wait. The receptionist looks at me. I look at her, but I, I'm nervous. I don't say anything. And finally, after about five minutes, she gets up. Beautiful, tall, 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 giant 6'2", comes over to me with a silver tray and a glass. Would you like some vodka? Vodka? Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I take a little sip of vodka, and she looks at me like I peed on the rug. This vodka is for the drinking not for the sipping. I drink the vodka, and she pours another glass, one for me, and now, one for her. All right, cool, so it's a party now. And then another six-foot-something woman appears out of some back closet where they keep them, and then there's another one and another. It is lovely, and more vodka. And then somebody turns on some music, and now I'm standing up, and then we're dancing. We're dancing, yeah, yeah, that's how we shake it in Detroit City. What you know about that? It is the best club in the world. No competition, just me and the perfect Russian model contingent, and I'm just about to show everybody my MC Hammer move, and I hear him. I see you're doing your part for diplomatic relations. Big Boss Man is back. Well, I just don't want anybody to think badly of Uncle Sam. I follow him out. Bye-bye, y'all. Then I tell boss man, listen, listen, if you ever need to talk to the Russians again, I'm your guy on the case. He laughs. But next week, we're back. Vodka, dancing, dancing, vodka, Russians. I am loving diplomacy. But my time ran out, and I had to leave and go back to Detroit, Michigan. I started working at an accounting firm every day. There I was. It was me and my roommate, Polly, go to work, come back home, eat spaghetti, go to bed. Go to work, come back home, eat spaghetti, go to bed. And one night, 
huddled around the TV with bowls of spaghetti. We're watching Dateline NBC, and there's a news flash. There have been three major CIA double agent cases in the past 10 years. Aldrich Ames. And they flash a picture. Robert Hansen. And they flash a picture. And we've just discovered the CIA believes another treason has compromised the agency to its core. And they flash one final picture. What? It's him. It's him. It's Big Boss Man. And they're saying he's a double agent. You see, the most secret piece of information the country has is the identity of CIA agents around the world. This, this is the crown jewel of the nation's intelligence operation. The entire sack of marbles, and they say he sold it to the Russians. No, no, you didn't. No, you did not. No, you did not sell us out like that. How many millions, how many bazillions of dollars was it worth? How many? 80 grand? On Dateline, I see the dates and I realize the drops of information were to the Russians in Malaysia. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold up. And my roommate Paulie's like, what? And I'm like, Paul, 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 Paul. I was with him. I was with him when he was making those drops. I was with him. And I realized the feds were going to kick in the door and take me off to some dark dungeon next to Big Boss Man. And my roommate's like, calm down. Tomorrow morning, first thing, you call the CIA and you tell them everything you know. I don't know nothing, man. Tell them everything you know, all right? All right, man. I'm going to call him. I was just trying to get my vodka on and talk to the ladies. Ain't nothing wrong with talking to the ladies. A man shouldn't have to go to jail for talking to the ladies. So the next morning, I went to pick up the phone and call him. I went to dial the number and call him. I did, I did, I did. I just couldn't do it. I, I, I just couldn't do it. So the next day, I tried again. And the next day, and a week went by, and two weeks, and a month, and two months, and it was five months later. I was preparing a big presentation in a large room for a bunch of VPs and people are filing in and I'm getting the PowerPoint all set up. How you doing there? Nice day. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, How are you? I really, really hate you. Nice to see you again, sir. Great. Please have a seat. And the intercom system comes on. Would Glenn Washington please pick up line 207? Glenn Washington, line 207. I click over. Hello? Hello. This is the CIA. I almost lost control of my functions in front of all the VPs and what? Y'all didn't get my message? I guess the system must be broken. Well, you know, with the satellite microwave transistor system. Uh, 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 maybe, maybe you can call me back in just a few minutes at a different number. They hang up. And I'm wet like I've been diving for coins at the bottom of a pool and my bosses are like, who was that? Nobody. That was the wrong number. And I present the worst PowerPoint presentation in modern history and slink back to my cubicle to wait five minutes, ten minutes, thirty years pass and the phone rings. Hello? Is this Glenn Washington? Yeah, man, this is Glenn. This is Glenn. What? What is it? How can I help you? What is it, man? Glenn, we thought you might be interested in some employment opportunities with the CIA. What? Employment? Me? But what was that you were speaking about earlier that you meant to call us? <laughs> uh, I thought y'all was somebody else. So you would consider working for the agency? I did think about it. And finally, I had to give him an answer. I think that would be a bad idea. See, I have a real hard time keeping a secret. Thanks to Stephanie Fu for the sound design on that piece. Now, in some areas of the world, espionage starts young, way too young, especially in places where conflict has been simmering for generations, areas like Northern Ireland, It's the kids who do the dirty work. Shane O'Doherty told our own Anna Sussman how he joined the IRA at the tender age of 15. 
I don't suppose that anybody would have joined the IRA if the civil disorder in Northern Ireland you know, wasn't there. There were tremendous attacks on the Catholic population at that time, and as things got very bad, the old historic defender of the Irish people, the IRA, grew up very quickly in the ghettos, started seeking recruits and passing out guns. It's the ordinary normal story of a you know, young child growing up somewhere where the stage is set for violence, where the uniforms for young people are already designed by their elders. Right at the start of the campaign, my best friend, he was killed. He was the first IRA volunteer killed in action. And then numbers of other friends were killed and shot dead. And I used to listen to Rolling Stone records like you can't always get what you want in my old record player, thinking, you know, my friends have crossed the veil of death in some way. And I was looking into their eyeballs one evening and they were dead the next day. The majority were shot dead. I'm here, I'm left. You know, I have to match their sacrifice. Therefore, I want to do as much as possible before I go. I want to get as much damage done to the British and Ireland as possible. Two adults who failed to plant a bomb at a police target needed somewhere to hide it, and they called at my house and gave the bomb to me. I'd never seen a bomb before. I just asked them how it worked, and it was a fuse bomb using matches and stuff. During the night, I went to the target, planted the bomb, lit the fuse, saw the sparks, ran like hell, and there was a massive explosion across the city which was the biggest news ever. You know, the IRA was in shock that a 15-year-old managed this, so it catapulted me into a kind of prominence. Nobody wanted to work with explosives because many people in the early days were killed. I saw that as a way to be more extreme, and I volunteered for that. We graduated to truck bombs, and then to hit London, I developed these letter bombs. I was training people how to make letter bombs and, you know, in a very poor house in the Craigan ghetto in Derry. I was just showing somebody how I'd make one and I patted the envelope to say, that's it, we're done. And it just exploded. And I still remember, like, the video in my mind of what happened. You know, I just saw this rainbow of colours fast approaching my eyes and shooting past my head and then there was an enormous blast. I'd been moved to Dublin for some treatment, and it was there that I was seen by sort of leaders and commanders of the IRA who wanted to see this kid who was making letter bombs. And one of the very, very top leaders, a man, you know, written about in many books, Seamus Toomey, he said, look, you're a bit of a hero. We need somebody to volunteer a kind of self-sacrificial attack on London. You'll probably be arrested or killed. Do you want to go? I said, where's the ticket? So I was sent over alone with 500 bucks in my pocket and some detonators and explosives and began a bombing campaign that went for on and off for about a year and a half alone, you know. I might have exploded two or three thousand pound or eight hundred pound truck bombs. I could blow up a landmine underneath an army vehicle on the border, which I, I did. And like it might get two lines in a Sunday newspaper. But when I was sent to London, I sent quarter ounce nuisance letter bombs to 10 Downing Street and it became national and world news for weeks. London is moving tonight, but the IRA has proved again what power it can wield. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not interfere with any letters or packets. Are you at all worried about the possibility of letter bombs? Oh, I think it's absolutely dreadful because nobody's safe anywhere now. It was just incredible to sit in a small flat in London, living on on air and uh, bread and water almost, and the radio stations were full of it, the newspapers were full of it, and we reached these people in their homes or offices in the heart of London, in the heart of Britain, and the way they'd sent 30,000 troops to harass our population back in Northern Ireland. Here we were, taking the similar kind of argument to their streets and their capital city and saying, look, you can do it to us, we can do it to you. It was as nakedly simple as that, you know. When you're a young teenager, I mean, we were boy soldiers at 15 years of age, you know, probably child soldiers, really. You're very underdeveloped in many ways. Yeah, I was very proud. It's the same reason why armies want, you know, 17 and 18-year-olds, because they're too young to know any better and they'll do anything they're told to do. And you just realise one teenage IRA volunteer in London could wreak havoc in the city. People have always said to me over the years, what does it take to run a campaign to destabilise a city? It just takes one person. When I uh, looked at newspapers and they had photo fit or whatever, pictures of the baby-faced bomber, they were getting close to figuring out who this kid was. You lived in the hope that you would take out some British minister or judge or general or, you know, senior military officer, sure. For me, when I sent these letters to these prominent people, that I assumed that they would open them. 
One Irish woman was a secretary to a top uh, British Army uh, major. She opened his mail and she got injured. And it was this thing about innocent people. Like, we were fighting because many innocent Catholic Irish were killed back in Northern Ireland by the police and army. And here I was, masterminding a campaign in London that was injuring what I called at the time working-class English people, and, I, and including some Irish people. I expected to be cornered and shot every single day in London, you know. They raced in and got me at my home at gunpoint uh, during the ceasefire. I was thrown into a cell in the famous old police station in Derry, and I, was, I saw the name of probably every other former IRA guy I'd ever known scratched on the wall, and I thought, oh, my God, they've all been here in the very same cell. And I scratched my name, uh, you know, in due course. And prison officers burst in my cell door at midnight, shouted at me, you know, are you that bastard from Derry arrested the other day? I said, yeah. And they go, well, uh, your comrades just shot dead a young police officer in response to your arrest. His father is the principal officer in charge of this prison wing that you are on. There was violent retribution on me, but in my prison cell, as I was getting the living daylights beaten out of me or and being invited to hang myself, I could hear the funeral occur from the prison of that young police officer who was killed because I was arrested during a ceasefire. And I heard the police band play the marches that he was taken away. I saw the ceasefire breaking down around me. I saw the naked sectarian hatred on every side, and I thought, my God. So I fought a campaign for a year to apologize to my victims in letters of apology, but the government didn't want me to write them. The prison authorities didn't want me to write them because they didn't want any moral status attaching to some IRA bastard in prison or whatever. But apart from that, I wrote a letter to the press explaining my new manifesto to the IRA to call off the war. And I wrote it to the Derry Journal newspaper in my city, thinking it would be just local news. It became national news in Britain and Ireland and all the British newspapers. Well, when I finally got permission from the very reluctant prison authorities and government to be able to write letters of apology, half of them wrote back and said, you know, really relieved and happy. But then I'm afraid, well, just under half of the remainder went to Sunday newspapers and sold the letters to, you know, the news of the world. Prisoners tend to read more of the tabloid Sunday newspapers. The worst tabloid newspaper in Britain has always been the news of the world, and it had a huge headline one Sunday, which completely undermined me for years after. And it was, I'll never forget, anger as IRA bomber says sorry. So when the prisoners saw this, they thought, oh my God, here's some real rat who has started whinging uh, an apology to victims, and they didn't speak to me for the next eight years in prison. <laughs> A lot of other prisoners came to me over the years and said, when we saw that headline, that you were damned for saying sorry, then we decided we'd never, ever say sorry, ever. Because you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. I always remember reading somewhere that a great line of a general in the First World War, once at war, to reason is treason. As I began to try and reason with people that this war couldn't go on forever, it caused enormous splits and difficulties within the IRA, so it ended up most people not even speaking to me in, among my comrades in prison. That's what, that's what conscience brought my way. You know, there were many courageous British MPs and churchmen who crossed the chasm between the British and the Irish, and they visited me in prison, you know, and worked on me for some years. And I've always been moved by the fact that more good was done by people crossing the divide and talking to the enemy than by war, war, you know. Sugar always caught more flies than vinegar. Shane was released from prison after 14 years and eventually helped to broker a lasting peace between the IRA and the British. You can find a link to his book, The Volunteer, on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman, and you are listening to Snap Judgment, The Gray Zone. We're going to be right back after a short break.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, The Gray Zone. Now, we've said it before, but the first casualty of war is truth. Fate routinely tricks innocence into paying the price of statecraft. Sarah Short, Shane Bauer, and Josh Vital had their lives torn apart simply because one day they walked down the wrong path. In 2009, three Americans were hiking through the peaceful countryside of Iraqi Kurdistan when they were arrested by Iranian security forces. Well, why hike through Iraq in the first place? Aren't we fighting a war in the country? Many reports will tell you that Americans, they're not exactly popular in the region, but Kurdistan is different. It's a semi-autonomous region in the north that's not a war zone and comparatively very safe. No American has ever been killed in northern Iraq or kidnapped. In Kurdistan, liquor is sold in corner stores. Developers are building neighborhoods designed to mimic American suburbs, and the mountains are often billed as the hot new tourist destination. Sarah, her boyfriend Shane Bauer, and their friend Josh Fatal were working in Damascus, Syria, and so they figured you know, that sounds nice, let's go try it out. The three took a bus into the Kurdish city of Suleimaniya. Suleimaniya is a very exciting place. It was extremely hot when we were there. Everywhere we went, people were talking to us. We were asking a lot of questions about Kurdish food and dress and music. We went to a museum in Salamania about the genocide against the Kurds by Saddam Hussein, a horrifying place to go to. And I remember very poignantly being in that museum because it showed the cells, the prison cells of Kurds that were unjustly detained. I walked into that small cell in this museum and I thought, there's no way I could survive. And then I found myself a prisoner, literally, four days later. When people think of Iraq, they don't think of green mountains. They don't think of waterfalls, but it's astoundingly beautiful. And so we wanted to go for a hike, and we asked the hotel manager, and he said right away, Ahmadawa, everyone's favorite spot around here. It's where all the families go and picnic. And he said, oh, everyone just sleeps by the river. There are kind of makeshift campsites. So we just kept hearing that this was such a fantastic place, and we, um, we decided to go. On their way there, Sarah's party passed a fork in the road. One path led high up into the Kandil Mountains, where Kurdish guerrillas roamed. But another ran to the Ahmed Awa waterfall. The hikers took the safe path, along with many other families and tourists. We were around hundreds of other people. People were kind of waking up, and there were a lot of people drinking tea at this small tea stand. We could see two different trails near where we slept, and we asked people which way is good for hiking. Everyone pointed down this one trail, and they said, oh, it's beautiful, and it's safe. There's no problem. We hiked for a few hours and saw absolutely no people. We had stopped for lunch. And when we stood up, we were kind of trying to decide if we should continue farther down the path or turn around and go back towards the waterfall. And I looked up to the top of the ridge, two, three hundred meters away, and there was a soldier at the top of the ridge, and he motioned for us to continue farther down the trail, which is the direction away from the waterfall. At that moment, we had nothing to fear, no reason to be concerned. And we assumed they were Peshmerga, that they were Kurdish soldiers. It's routine when you're around soldiers and you're a foreigner in the Middle East that they ask you a few questions, look at your passport. It's, it's no big deal. And they looked at our, our passports and they said, oh, Amriki. We started to speak to them in Arabic and they didn't understand us. We asked them if they were Kurdish and they said, no, Farsi. And it was a, a moment of a sort of complete disbelief because there was no indication that we were anywhere near Iran. If there was a border around there, it was completely unmarked. So we were taken aback and we just started to try to make the argument that we needed to go back to the waterfall and that they needed to, to let us go. Soldiers holding AK-47s ordered the hikers to walk into Iran. They knew they couldn't go to Iran, but you do not argue with the guy holding a gun. We didn't have a choice. 
but to follow his orders. We continued down the path, and then we saw another soldier by a small building, and he motioned for us to come to him, and we walked towards him, and then he pointed to the ground and he said, Iran. And he pointed to the trail where we had been hiking, and he said, Iraq. And that was the moment that we knew that, that we were in a difficult situation. I've replayed that day, that morning in my mind, countless times. I mean, at a certain point in prison, I just gave myself permission not to think about it anymore. When something so unexpectedly horrible happens to you, you go over every detail and you think, if this one thing had been different. But when it comes down to it, you have to accept. You have absolutely no choice. And I had plenty of time in my cell to come to terms with my fate. The three were hustled off to Tehran, to the infamous Evan prison, into a special section housing the country's highest profile political prisoners. The three hikers were accused of espionage. The questions became more and more unrelated to any kind of reality. I mean, they would ask me things like, have you seen the inside of the Pentagon? And I'd say, no, I've, I've never been to the Pentagon. And they'd say, but, but you're a teacher. Teachers should at least visit the Pentagon. At a certain point, my interrogator, after months of talking to me, sympathized with me a great deal. And he said, Sarah, I know you're innocent, but at this point it's become political and I don't know what's going to happen. Sarah and her friends had become pawns in an international chess match. The Iranian government wanted to trade them for Iranians held inside U.S. jails, but the Obama administration wanted to get rid of the Iranian regime. And the hikers' case was an example, pure and simple, of Iranian repression. Meanwhile, the hikers sat in prison. Being in that hotel was extremely confusing. You know, you feel like, all of a sudden, you feel more free. You feel like, oh, wow, I can, I'm just walking down a hallway and I'm not blindfolded. Every single second is this sort of burst of adrenaline because you're experiencing so much more than you've experienced for so long. And at that point, we didn't know we were seeing our mothers. We had no idea why we were there. And of course, we thought, well, maybe we're getting released. In May 2010, without warning, Iranian officials seized the hikers from prison and ushered them into the Esteglau Hotel. They were told nothing about why they had been moved. The good news was that they briefly reunited with their mothers in the hotel. The bad news, however, proved devastating. The hikers wouldn't be returning home with them. Sarah remained locked in solitary confinement for an additional three months. She did receive daily visits with Shane and Josh and was allowed to watch one DVD a day, mostly action films. After a while, Sarah even reluctantly started enjoying action movies, especially the part where the hero escapes from the prison camp. You can run in here if you like, but I'm gonna scram. The Iranian government released Sarah on bail in August of 2010, but she left alone without Josh or her new fiancé, Shane, who had proposed to her in prison. When I found out that I was going to be released alone, if I had let myself feel the disappointment and the pain of having to leave Shane and Josh, I couldn't have of walked. I couldn't have gotten through the experience of talking to the media and stepping on that plane. I had to completely disconnect. Shane and Josh are the only reason that I came out of prison unbroken and strong. The three of us decided very early on that we were going to come out of prison unchanged. When, as soon as I got back to New York, there were so many things that were surprising. Everyone has Blackberries and iPads. I had to check my bags and they told me it cost like 50 bucks for my suitcase. I went into a small tantrum. <laughs> I was like, that's outrageous. How can you charge me to check my luggage? And he looked at me and he had this big smile on his face and he was like, I know you. You've been in Iran. Since her release, Sarah has dedicated her life to freeing Shane and Josh. And though she wants more than anything to bring her friends out of Iran, someday she'd like to go back herself. To be a free woman in Iran, I think, would have a certain poetic justice to it. I really do hope that happens someday. Many, many thanks to Sarah Short for sharing her story and relating the situation of Shane Bauer and Josh Fatal 
who remain unfairly imprisoned even now. We send them much love and look forward to a day in the immediate future we can put a different postscript on this story and let you know they've been set free. That piece was produced by Reese Ehrlich, along with Anna Sussman and Stephanie Fu. And right after the break, we get to take you for a trip back in time, and you'll find out you don't have to go all the way to Iran in order to be unjustly accused. Stay tuned, because this is Snap Judgment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, The Gray Zone. Today, we're exploring the world of cloak and dagger. Have you ever thought maybe someone was following you? Like that car has been behind you for far too long. That's what happened to a secretary in New York City on a dark summer night. Her life was changed forever. At the age of 95, Miriam Moskowitz is feisty and sharp-witted. She plays the violin and volunteers at the local hospital. But her story began as a young secretary, when she was caught up in one of history's darker moments. The year was 1950. I had been waiting in front of my apartment building for Brothman. Brothman it was the man I was working for, Abe Brothman. We were to go to dinner. When he came, we noticed a car that was following us. It was a sedan. There were two men in the car. So we zigzagged around Manhattan, and they followed us around. We couldn't lose them. The worst part of it was the next morning when I went down to the laundromat with a bunch of laundry, there was a new car and it followed me, rolled with me to the laundromat, waited for me while I waited for the wash, rolled back as I walked back with the laundry. We didn't know what was happening, but we knew that we didn't like this. Miriam and her boss, Brothman, worked at a chemical manufacturing plant in northern New Jersey. When they rolled into work that morning, three unmarked cars rolled in behind them. Then the three cars swooped down to the building. I ran in the inside to tell Brockman that they were coming. Suddenly the place was alive with FBI agents. I said, what are you doing? And they said, you're under arrest, miss. And I said, what for? and they said conspiracy to obstruct justice. Now, I didn't know what that meant. It meant that Miriam's past was coming back to haunt her. It was 1950, and Miriam was in the unhappy position of having been a member of the Communist Party. I had matured, grown up really, through the depression. I had seen some fearful things that were happening to neighbors and friends. I would see the bread lines. It was impossible to ignore this situation. So I became radicalized. I joined the CP, I think, 1946, the Communist Party. I was pretty quiet as a member, but I was asking questions, and everybody in the party was terribly nervous. And they began to suspect that the questions that I was asking were not innocent and that I must be an FBI plant. So they, they uh, expelled me. She was kicked out of the Communist Party because they thought she was an informer. 
and now the feds were going to throw her in prison, claiming she's part of a communist spy ring. The truth is the FBI had been to the chemical plant a few months earlier and interrogated Miriam and Brothman and a co-worker named Harry Gold. And they asked Miriam about her past. I lied to them that I was not a member of the Communist Party because the next question would have been, give us the names of other people. I would not have done that. I simply thought, I'll stop it right now by lying and saying, no, I'm not or never was a member of the Communist Party. But Harry Gold, her co-worker, eventually admitted to giving atomic secrets to the Russians. And he said that Miriam and her boss, Brothman, had encouraged him to lie about it after that first visit by the feds. So Miriam and Brothman were picked up for obstructing justice. Then they put me in one car and Brothman in another, three agents for each of us. They drove sort of leisurely, and I wondered, why are they not rushing if we're under arrest? And then their radio began to cackle in police jargon. Pulled up to Foley Square, and I saw how well staged this had been. The place was live with newspapermen, photographers swarming all over. The headlines across the world said, Two more spies arrested in the spy ring. There were three more arrests after us. Ethel Rosenberg was arrested a week later. Morton Sobel was arrested. Nine arrests swooping down, and the country was hysterical because it was so frightened that this country had bred all these spies, and these spies were going to wreck the world, and certainly wreck the United States. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If a person supports communist teachings, she may be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently. The FBI took my purse and everything in it, delivered me to jail, and all I had were the clothes that I was wearing. I suddenly realized I was going to be in trouble without cigarettes. The women seemed to be making fun of me when I arrived, but actually they turned out to be generous. So I was able to borrow a couple of cigarettes and smoke a puff or two and then hold it until the next time I wanted a puff. They asked me what I was there for, and I said, conspiracy to obstruct justice. And they hooted. They said, what's that? I said, I don't know, and they didn't know either. And these were pretty savvy women. One of Miriam's jailmates was Ethel Rosenberg, who was famously convicted of espionage along with her husband. Uh, we would share a cup of coffee we got from commissary in the afternoon, and we would talk, and we would sort of fly out the window. We were no longer in jail. I was in jail when uh, Ethel came back and uh, she had been sentenced to death. She was wiped out, but she didn't think, nobody thought this was gonna be a reality. I couldn't fathom such a thing happening. This was the United States of America. We would have a fair trial. This was a theater of the absurd. We were judged guilty even before we set foot in a courtroom because the publicity that the FBI had released were hideous. Miriam says she never encouraged Harry Gold to lie, but it didn't matter. She was guilty by association. And as the trial unfolded, Miriam made the curious decision not to take the stand in her own defense. Why? I will tell it to you, but I, Brothman and I were intimately involved and neither of us wanted to take the stand because Brothman, you have to understand, was married and this relationship was not going to be very pretty when it got into the headlines. So we didn't take the stand. They would have portrayed me as a harlot. Instead, she went to prison for two years and carried the burden of traitor for the rest of her life. The cost to us was terrible because we became pariahs forever. 
Even after we were released, my mother thought I should not be going out during the day. I should venture out only in the evening when people wouldn't notice me. And I couldn't hold a job because the FBI would visit their personnel department and tell them that they had on their payroll a person who was a communist and a spy. And it was a terrible time after everything was over. So was it better to be labeled a spy than a harlot? Oh, that's no choice. <laughs> that is no that is no choice. <laughs> I wouldn't make it. Thanks so much to Miriam for sharing your story with us. And that's only part of what really happened. You can find out more about Miriam Moskowitz right at our website, snapjudgment.org. Of course, if you've got a story to share, you can do it at the same place, snap judgment to the O-R-G. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't have any spy stories. I don't know any spies. Well, friend, that's because they're spies. They know better. Now, we asked our own Rita Daniels to dig a little bit deeper into her own family background to see what she could uncover. My grandpa died of a heart attack while playing a doubles game of tennis right before I was born. And I was told that he'd always been in the Red Cross, even though I knew that this supposed Red Cross gig had made it so that my grandfather raised his family in such exotic places as Istanbul, Turkey, San Jose, Costa Rica, and West Berlin, all in the 50s and early 60s. So a few months back, while having a rare conversation with my dad, I asked him more about my grandpa's work. You know, I don't know what he did, but I got an inkling. You got an inkling to what, Grandpa? Did? Oh, yeah. So I was eight years old, and I asked my dad one day, Dad, what do you do? And my dad, who is a very unassuming, very quiet guy, looked around dramatically to see if anybody was around, and they weren't. And he took out a little piece of paper, and he wrote S-P-Y. And I looked, and I read it. My dad's a spy. And he took a match, and he burned the piece of paper. And <laughs> my mouth dropped open, and I never looked at my dad the same way. He said, don't tell anyone. And I didn't for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> and then my dad asked me, Rita, what do you do for work? And I took out a piece of paper, and I wrote the letters NPR. And he looked, and he read it, and I said, don't tell anyone. Thank you, Rita Daniels. Keep those family stories coming. Now, James Bond's pretty face never had any trouble sneaking from one country to the next. But in the real world, when stakes are high, sometimes you've got to take some extra precautions. Our own Mitzi Mock spoke with the CIA operative who came up with a cover story straight out of Hollywood. In the world of espionage, a spy is only as good as his cover story. And no one knows this better than Tony Mendez. I'm Tony Mendez. Uh, for 25 years, I was working undercover for the CIA. Tony was the CIA's chief of disguises, and it was his job to come up with cover stories for the agency. And in 1979, he would have to concoct the most elaborate tale of his career. Good evening. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran has been invaded and occupied by Iranian students. The U.S. Embassy in Iran was under siege. The Revolutionary Guard had taken 52 people hostage. But in the middle of the chaos, six Americans escaped and hid with Canadian diplomats in Tehran. And when the CIA decided it was time to bust them out, Tony Mendez was their man. We couldn't agree on the way to bring six people out until uh, I came up with this really far-out idea. I picked up the phone and called my uh, Hollywood consultant and said, uh, how many people in a Hollywood location scouting party? And he said, six or eight. Well, that's exactly what we needed. So here was Tony's plan to smuggle the Americans out of Iran, disguise them as an international film crew. Director, scriptwriter, set designer, cinematographer, transportation coordinator, bankroller, production manager. 
And if Iranian immigration officers asked them why they'd been in the country, well, they'd just been in Tehran scouting film locations. Tony convinced the CIA and the Canadian government to sign off on the cover story. The Canadian parliament even held a secret session to grant passports to the six Americans in hiding. But you see, Tony couldn't leave anything to chance. If this facade was going to work, his staff would have to back their cover story up to the last detail, even if it meant creating a fake production studio in Hollywood. We had people there at the desk ready to uh, receive any query regarding the, the scouting party. And of course, What's a movie studio without a film project? We uh, commandeered a script. We decided to call our movie Argo, because that was the ship that uh, Jason and the Argonauts sailed on to uh, rescue the Golden Fleece. Tony also wrote up fake resumes for the Americans. So that I could uh, hand to them when I got there and said, this is you, learn your part, you got two days, and you're gonna have to play that part as we leave. With their sham production company now up and running, Tony and a fellow CIA officer took their falsified documents and boarded a plane for Tehran. And when they got there... It was chaos personified. The, uh, the Revolutionary Guard liked to go up and down the street in their pickup, firing their weapons in the air, shooting up the town. At this point, the Americans had been in hiding for 86 days. So when Tony and his colleague arrived, they wasted no time getting to work. We styled each of them. Simple uh, things like changing the color of the facial hair with a little bit of mascara, add a few age lines. But some of the changes were more dramatic than others. In the case of um, one of the six, his normal demeanor is to be kind of buttoned down uh, diplomat type. <clears throat> By the uh, final rehearsal, he had a tight set of trousers, sunglasses. His shirt was open. He had this big gold medallion nestled in his chest hairs, and uh, he was mincing up and down the room, having a great time. In 48 hours, Tony had transformed the six, even coaching them on Canadian speech. But he had to be sure they could play their parts under pressure. So he asked a Canadian staffer to turn up the heat. And we uh, had the Canadian officer who spoke Farsi dress up in his camis and jackboots and came in with his swagger stick into the room and smashed the swagger stick down on the table and said, you are not telling the truth. And some of the more confident ones ended up being not so confident at the end. Tony had good reason to be anxious. If the group couldn't stick by their cover story... It doesn't matter how much makeup you put on them, they're going to give themselves away. The big day had finally arrived. The plan was for everyone to meet at the airport in full costume, ready to make their getaway. We brought them in through security, and we got to uh, immigration, and we put all put our authentic-looking phony documents down. The little immigration guy looked at them and looked at the pile of documents and scarfed them all up and went in the back room. And we thought, what's he doing? Within a few minutes, he comes back out with uh, our pile of documents, and uh, he's stirring a cup of tea. He, he had taken a tea break. The cover story was working. The group had fooled the immigration officers and made it to the departure lounge. Everything was going as planned. Until... The announcement came on that there was a mechanical problem. And to make matters worse... Uh, the Revolutionary Guard was in there marauding about, which made our situation kind of tense. If they catch us trying to sneak out of the country, the question is, how do you want to take your bullet at dawn? With the Revolutionary Guards hovering only inches away, some of the Americans began to lose focus. One of the six uh, picked up a Farsi newspaper and started reading it. And you wouldn't expect your Hollywood type to be a Farsi linguist. But just before the guards had a chance to interrogate the group, they called the flight, and as we're uh, going up the ramp to the aircraft, uh, 
one of the six uh, nudged me and said, you guys think of everything. He pointed to the nose of the aircraft and lettered across the nose of the aircraft was the word Argyle. So that was the omen, that everything was going to be okay. Now safely outside of Iranian airspace, it was time to celebrate. We had our Bloody Marys and a give out a cheer. And when they landed... A couple of them dropped down and kissed the tarmac. Mission accomplished. Maybe I'm nuts, but uh, I did have fun. We're so glad this story has a happy ending. But the CIA kept its role in the escape a secret for almost 20 years. You can read more about Tony Mendez and his CIA adventures in his book, The Master of Disguise. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now, Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. No way, not alone. Please give it up for the secret agent man himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Will Urbina, the defector protector, Anna Sussman, codename Big Red. Rita Daniels, the safe cracker, the assassin, Stephanie Fu, and on demolitions, Mitzi Mock. If you happen to roll into the situation, see the jobs all botched, things blown to hell, who do you know has complete and plausible deniability? Why, it's the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank them very much, even though they were not at the scene of the occurrence that didn't happen. PRX, the public radio exchange, prx.org. Now, I've got to be quick about this last part. Got to be quick because the radio show will self-destruct in 10 seconds. Hopefully, you've got it memorized. See, this is absolutely not the news. Not the news. In fact, you can find it secret files in the back of the hidden wall panel in the billionaire's mansion read directions on how to fire the satellite plasma laser destroy the prime minister's motorcade and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is but this is npr